Hey everybody, Larry Powell here, your host for Studio HFL. Welcome back. I've got a great interview coming up here in a couple of minutes, but first I'd like to tell you about the show sponsors. Now, I'm not promising anything, but I'm pretty sure you'll become the most popular musician on stage when you show up with one of the Messina covers, cases, or bags. David Messina and Eric Howard are Messina covers, and they produce some absolutely beautiful and functional cases and bags, and you should really check them out, all the options they offer, at messinacovers.net. Peter Pickett picked the perfect people to produce perfectly playable and pitch-perfect products. The Pickett line of custom and stock mouthpieces and the Blackburn line of custom-built trumpets will have you sounding great and looking good, too, if you carry them in a Messina Covers bag. Find out more about all that Peter and Eric Marine have to offer by visiting PicketBlackburn.com. To stay current on what's going on with Studio HFL, you can follow me on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Studio HFL, and you can watch the live and pre-recorded interviews on the YouTube channel. And, of course, while you're there, please go ahead and subscribe. Everything, I do mean everything, is better in HD. Just play a Hammond Design mouthpiece and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And to get the most of your HD experience, you should buy in bulk. I believe Carl has a pay for six, get six mouthpiece deal or three or ten, whatever. Check it out at carlhammonddesign.com. If you're enjoying this podcast, I'd love it if you would take just a couple of minutes and go to Apple Podcast to leave a star rating and a review. And doing so will help improve the visibility of this podcast and draw more listeners. If you want an affordable alternative to BACH and the Yammies without sacrificing quality and sound, then you need to check out the Eastman line of trumpets. I have my 824S B-flat, my 422 cornet, and my 512 flugelhorn, and I love all three of those horns. And I will say, they also fit great into my Messina covers bag. Just saying, you can find out more, of course, at eastmanwinds.com. I'd love it if you'd visit the Studio HFL website and sign up for the weekly newsletter. While you're there, go ahead and visit the merch page and buy a Studio HFL shirt for yourself and one as a gift for someone else. That is at studiohfl.com. You know, it isn't just the hobbits that like the Shires. In fact, had Bilbo Baggins had an S.E. Shires, he would have conquered Sauron in one movie instead of three. If you're going for that Middle Earth or a truly heavenly experience with a trumpet, then you need to check out both the Q-Series and the custom line of horns at seshires.com. You could own a horn that was made to rule them all. Messina covers. You know that feeling you get when your chops feel like they need saving? If only there were a product designed to save our chops. But not just any old lip balm is going to be a chop saver. No, it must be a carefully crafted concoction created by someone special. Someone who knows chops and how to save them. And thankfully, Dan Gosling is that person. And he did create something to save our chops. And he expertly chose the most obvious and appropriate name of Chop Saver. You can buy some from ChopSaver.com and keep some in your Messina covers case. You know how you're on Instagram and all of a sudden Trent Austin pops up on screen with a trumpet and plays some ridiculous lick like it's nothing? Now, he doesn't do it very often, you know, maybe only twice a day, but it's killer. Austin Custom Brass are your place to find one of Trent's custom horns or to pick up a great horn that's there on a trade-in. Make it your biz to find out more at austincustombrass.biz. I'd like to invite you to become part of the Studio HFL community by going to Patreon and choosing from one of the four tiers of support. You can help to financially support the show for as little as $36 a year. That's only $3 a month. Benefits include exclusive access to interview excerpts, behind-the-scenes report, an invitation to be in the room with a guest during an interview, product discounts, and more. And of course, you can join the community of faithful supporters by visiting patreon.com slash studiohfl. Now, on with the interview.
Hey, I'm talking to Jen Sukula. Welcome, Jen. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> okay. That, so, that wasn't for real, though, right? Uh, this time it'll be real, okay. for real. Okay, so I'm here today to learn as much as possible about you and your playing and your teaching and to share that with the world and make us both rich and famous. How does that sound? <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. So uh, if that were possible, um, and we would have done that already, I think. Yeah, but, that's totally why I started playing the trumpet. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, one of the things that uh, I'm excited about, and I've told you this before, and it's true, is how excited I am that we're going to be working together at University of Indianapolis. Yeah, me too. It should be fun. And uh, we've got a lot of good things in store. Um, very different ways of playing the horn. Uh, I play through the mouthpiece. You blow through the other end of the horn. <laughs> Obviously, that's the correct um, way. <laughs> is that the correct way to do it? Is that how they teach it at... Uh, well, at the unnamed college in Muncie. Yes. Yeah. I'm just kidding. And I will edit that out. <laughs> Let's get it started really by telling me what you're doing right now, where you're teaching, where you're playing. Okay. Well, right now I am professor of jazz trumpet at University of Indianapolis. I don't know if that's my official title. I don't know what my official title is. Sounds good to me. Yeah. Works for me. Um, I'm also going to play with you in the faculty brass quintet. Mm-hmm. I teach some jazz history classes there, and at Butler University I also teach uh, jazz trumpet, and then I teach trumpet lessons also. And where do you teach those? Noblesville and out of my home studio. Oh, very cool. Big studio? I've got, right now, about 15. Wow. Yeah. Pretty cool. And so how long have you been out of school? Uh, three years, I think. Has it really been three? I don't, yeah, I don't know. It all starts to... Does it seem like a distant memory? Yeah. Good. Sure. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of want to forget it. We've been in school for a long enough period of time, so... Yeah. Tell me a little bit, starting with, like, your most recent uh, educational experience going backwards. So, doctorate, master's, bachelor's, mm-hmm. uh, who you studied with, uh, maybe what your main focus was for each of those, uh, if you want to talk about methods that were introduced or things that you worked on specifically in your playing for each of those. Okay. Um, So my doctorate was at Ball State University. And for the first, oh, actually, no, on my doctorate, I started with Dr. Brittany Hendricks. And she was great for me because she's a very detailed kind of teacher. And so she really got into the, like, the details of my playing as far as like every little nuance that I was doing. Musically, technically? Both, yeah. Physically, everything involved? Yeah. Uh, I mean, we had lessons where we would spend, you know, an hour lesson on maybe eight bars of music, just really making sure it was happening well. And I mean, we can go into this later, but right at the beginning of my doctorate, I had an embouchure injury. Mm. And so she was amazing in helping me get through that because at one point I thought I wasn't going to play anymore. So she was very patient and very um, helpful. And then I also studied with Mark B. Sully. I was his uh, grad assistant Mm -hmm. during my doctorate and my master's. And so it was really the best of both worlds because I was trumpet performance. So, you know, I was learning trumpet rep and all that good stuff, but then also working a lot with the jazz department and getting to play in jazz band and in a combo. So I felt like I was getting a good variety of things. Played in a brass quintet for a while. Student or faculty? Student, Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, It was mostly made of grad students. So, and then... For my master's, that was also at Ball State, and I studied with Paul Everett during that time. 
And he was good because he, you know, he knew his stuff when it came to the all the repertoire and the orchestral rep, which was definitely something that was not my forte. And so he helped, you know, make, made me learn a lot of that stuff that <laughs> maybe I kind of was hesitant to. And you owned a sea trumpet at that point, didn't you? I did. I know. Back in the day, <laughs> the Frankenstein horn. It was made up of like three horns. Um, yeah. So he was very helpful during that time period. Also worked with the jazz department then. And then in between my bachelor's and my master's degree i did the cruise ship thing for mm-hmm. about three years so i just went out and played on ships and traveled. as a jazz trumpeter right um in the orchestra mm-hmm. so sometimes we'd have two trumpet players so i would usually play the solo chair sometimes there'd just be one so i would just kind of cover everything mm-hmm. um and then for my undergrad i went to butler university where i studied with alan miller who was just, you know, you know, awesome trumpet player and a great teacher. And, and a great guy. Yeah, yeah, super nice guy. I actually apologized to him recently <laughs> for all the times that I didn't practice for lessons <laughs> because now that I teach, now I know how annoying that is. And uh, he said, oh, it's okay. I knew you were practicing a lot, just not the stuff that I gave you. <laughs> um, so, yeah, he's cool. And then, uh, let's see. And then my undergrad was also trumpet performance. So I basically have three pieces of paper that say I blew through a pipe, but whatever. That's cool. Yeah, it was fun. That's cool. So I want to go back to the doctoral experience. Um, Starting your doctorate with an embouchure injury is not the typical thing to do. No, it was terrifying. So (laughs) what made you keep going at that point? I mean, why not take time to let it heal and then pursue a doctorate? What... Was it just the timing of everything, or did uh, Brittany, uh, what did she do to help you stay on that path and stay on your timeline? Mm-hmm. Well, right before I started my doctorate, I got married, and so I wasn't playing a lot of trumpet, you know, as we were getting the wedding preparations going, mm-hmm. and then got married, went on honeymoon for a week, definitely didn't play then, <laughs> and then I came back, and I was, like, ready to jump right into it, and I just started playing trumpet, like, really hard first day back after not playing a whole lot. I was using a mute because I lived in an apartment at the time, mm-hmm. and I was probably not playing as efficiently as I should have been. I know I wasn't. And so everything just kind of came together and I ended up like pulling a muscle. And it was one of those things like I knew I had hurt myself, but I was getting a brand new trumpet teacher. I was starting a doctorate. I didn't want to be that student who's like, well, I couldn't really practice. So, you know, so I played on it way more than I should have and I made it worse. Mm -hmm. So then when I finally met Dr. Hendricks, um, I was not sounding great, not feeling great. And I explained to her finally what happened because it just got to the point where I couldn't really hide it. And so she she was really cool because she could have been like, well, you can't be a doctoral trumpet performance major, not play. Um, but instead she said, you need to rest until this pain goes away. So it's not just painful. It's also affecting your playing. I mean, you can. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 If it it affected every aspect of my playing mentally and physically, Mm -hmm. um, musically. And so she just said, stop playing until it doesn't hurt. 
And so I was off the horn probably for about a month. Hmm. Um, I mean, I was still practicing. I was listening a lot. I was transcribing at the piano and doing those kinds of things. I was sitting in rehearsals. So I, you weren't playing Candy Crush and <laughs> Facebooking the entire time? No. I don't even think I had Facebook then. I'm a <laughs> dork. But, um, yeah, so then after the pain kind of started getting better, I just very gradually got back into it with a lot of um, soft, low, like, Clark studies. And um, then... Started, I basically had to relearn how to play the trumpet in a very efficient way using enough air because I definitely wasn't using enough air and uh, I was relying more on my face. And so we talked a lot about if you if you think about trumpet playing like a pie and you have your air piece from the pie, like maybe you could even divide that up to air column airspeed, uh, embouchure, and what was the other one? Embouchure pressure, and there's another one, maybe hand pressure or something like that, I don't remember. But um, you divide that up, and then let's say that you take away part of that piece, like the air. Well, you've got to have something to fill that pie back up to compensate for not having enough air. That's going to be some kind of pressure, probably. And I think for me, it was probably embouchure pressure, and that's what made me pull. So mm-hmm. I got to relearn how to not do that. <laughs> so did you have an embouchure change to go with this? No, but I did do an embouchure change during my undergrad, mm-hmm. which was not fun because I played uh, very down. Downstream. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that was a whole nother learning how to play kind mm-hmm. of aspect. But this, this during my doctorate, I think, was more just learning how to efficiently use my air, not relying on any kind of movement to change notes or anything like that. Do you think had you not had the injury, um, well, having had the injury, I maybe phrase it this way, having had the injury, you feel like that gives you information to help others who might? Oh, yeah. Even before they get to an injury, you might be able to look at what they're doing and hear, and hear how they sound. Do you think that yes, has helped you? definitely, definitely. Um, all my students, when I see them doing things that I did, it's like, we need to address this right now. And, you know, some when you're young, you can do a lot of things to your body and you don't feel it. <laughs> and I try to explain them, to explain to them, you know, you're 13 right now. You can get up and go run for a mile and not be sore the next day. But in a few years, it may not be like that. And it's same with the trumpet. You have to take care of yourself physically. And so, yeah, I, I definitely feel like it helps me address that as a teacher. If I see a bad habit, I'm going to harp on it until they change it because I know what can happen. Mm-hmm. And same with the, um, uh, with the embouchure change. It really sucked during that time that I was going through it. It took about a year before I felt like I could even play where I was before the embouchure change. Mm-hmm. And so I think that also helps me when I have students who are changing an embouchure or are considering changing an embouchure, mm-hmm. I can kind of help them get through that and decide if that's a good option for them or not. So they're on a very different path than you were going into your master's or through your master's. Mm-hmm. Do they accept the embouchure change as readily as you did? Well, my general rule is I do not change an embouchure unless the student wants to do it. And I will... You know, I'll bring it up and I'll say, you know, you've got kind of a weird embouchure. 
But also, I remember everybody's face is different. And I know there's, like, one idea of this is, you know, when you look at all the great trumpet players, a vast majority of them use such and such embouchure and setting, da-da-da. But, um, yeah, like, everybody's face is different. And you look at some trumpet players like Chris Bodie, who plays on the side and has a gorgeous sound and can play all over the horn, you know. So people can make it work, that's for sure. But I definitely try to inform them of their options and if they just want to play in college like they just want to do marching band in college for a while and then they're going to get a job and who knows if they're still going to play i'll tell i'll tell them but then i'll say it's up to you if you want to change it if you get because like the reason i had to change my embouchure was i got to the point where i wasn't progressing anymore Mm -hmm. and it was mainly with my flexibility and it was Alan Miller who changed my embouchure. And he just, he's like, well, I've been trying to avoid this, but we're just going <laughs> to move it up. And he moved it such a tiny amount, and I couldn't play a note. <laughs> and I was so mad at him for so long. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so if, they, if they're to a point where they play at a level that they're happy with and, you know, they just want to do it for fun, I'm not going to mess with You're it. You're trying to get them to a functional Yeah, level. yeah. I'm not going to mess with it. If they want to go on and do maybe as a career, then I'll try to persuade them to think more about it if if I think it's really affecting their playing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think things like this, uh, sometimes trumpet players are hesitant to talk about because we don't want to admit that we've had flaws or maybe we currently have flaws in our playing. Um, I admit that I have deficiencies, but I'm always working on them. Um, and I'm pretty good at disguising them like a lot of other <laughs> players. Yeah. Um, but I think talking about stuff like this makes it easier to uh, help other players and help them to understand that, okay, this is not, I'm not uh, so special that I'm the only one who's going through this. Mm-hmm. You know, and so... Um, it's okay to talk about, and I think we should. You know, te- these players should, uh, students should talk to their teacher and say, "Hey, you know what's going on? I need help." Oh yeah, definitely. And you know, and you can say, "Now I've been there, got the T-shirt. <laughs> I know how to help you out of this." Yeah, I know. Like when I first started to, I didn't have very many students at the time when I was in my doctorate and I was going through this problem, and I remember when I was telling my couple of students that I had, like, look, I can't play during your lesson right now. Were there other things uh, major along your journey that uh, you've had to overcome? Um, I don't know. Sometimes, maybe everybody feels this way, but sometimes I feel that, like, everything bad that could happen <laughs> happens to me. Um, like, the embouchure change, the, the embouchure injury, you know... I think sometimes when you're having issues, you can easily self-diagnose yourself with something that makes you really scared and freaked out, and it's really not a problem, you know? <laughs> so I definitely, definitely thought there, there were some other things going on. Um, I guess maybe the biggest challenge besides those two things, though, would just be my own like self-doubt and um, fear of failure. I would think those two things would be my biggest challenges that I'm constantly dealing with. I think a lot of people probably do. Um, Musicians tend to be pretty good at that. Crippling self-doubt. Yeah. 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 
right? <laughs> yeah, some people seem really good at controlling it or hiding it. But that's definitely been something that I've had to deal with a lot. And I think every time you have some success that helps you like, oh, okay, maybe I can do this or maybe I'm actually getting better. <laughs> um, but yeah. So did you go to high school here in Indiana? Yeah, I went to Western Boone High School. Okay. And uh, how was your experience through middle school, high school? Well, I moved um, after my sixth grade year. So I started in sixth grade. I moved after my sixth grade year. Um, and everyone else had already been playing a whole nother year longer than me. Mm -hmm. So I was really behind them. They knew notes that I didn't know. They, no one ever taught me how to count music. So they were playing music that I had never even seen before. I guess that was a pretty big challenge. Um, and had you had any musical experience prior to that, even on piano or choir or not really, no, not really. Um, and so when I got to middle school, I was really, really behind. And I remember first day of band, I think there were maybe like 14 or 15 trumpet players, and I was last chair. <laughs> and so I was determined that that was not going to stay that way. <laughs> and so I started taking lessons uh, when I was 13. And well, I guess before that, I kind of started figuring out how to count music better. You know, like I knew two eighth notes were one and, and I knew four sixteenth notes were one E and a. I didn't know why. I just heard people call them that. Mm -hmm. So basically what I did was I took my Arbin's book. Yeah, so what I would do is I would write all the counts in Arbin's exercises, and I wouldn't know why I was writing those counts in. Like, I really didn't get it. I just knew that that's what those rhythms were, how they were counted counted and then I remember one day all of a sudden it clicked and I saw why a dotted eighth sixteenth was one uh you know and like I don't know why I just all of a sudden it clicked together and I went running in the kitchen like mom mom I know how to count music now <laughs> it, was, it was a pretty cool moment um and I started taking lessons and yeah then that's just that helps so much okay let's back up even further okay why the trumpet what what led you to that? All right. Well, I hate to admit this to a whole bunch of trumpet players, uh -oh. but I really wanted to play the saxophone <gasps> really bad. <laughs> no way. Okay. I'm not just trying to jump on the bandwagon here. I did too. Really? <laughs> but they didn't have one at the store, so my dad brought home a cornet. Oh, nice. Yeah. So that's how I ended up doing it. So what's your version of that story? Well, I was of like... my story. <laughs> I was like really sure I was going to play the saxophone. And then we got to the thing where you had to try all the instruments out. And the guy said, okay, well, I know you want to play saxophone, but you should try some others just to see. I was like, all right, if I have to. So he gave, he gave me the saxophone actually first, and I was kind of little. And he gave it to me, and I was like, man, this is really heavy. It's like as big as I am. And what are all these buttons? I didn't realize the saxophone had all of these <laughs> buttons on it. What? And so he's like, well, try this one. It only has three, and it's not as heavy. <laughs> <laughs> this is a dumb story, but... No, it's great. <laughs> and I played one note out of it, and I was, like, hooked immediately. Wow. As soon as I blew a note in the trumpet. And... He made me try some other ones. I was mad about it, whatever. But I was like, nope, I've decided the trumpet. So. Had you heard trumpet players before that? 
or not really that I'd pay attention to. Yeah, no, not really. Well, I didn't come from a musical family or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And so didn't really, I had knew nothing about music really. So you're now playing trumpet. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're behind. Yes. You're behind everyone. Um, I was able to catch up once I started taking lessons and, um, and were you listening to anybody at that point? Oh, well, I started taking lessons. My first trumpet teacher was Mark B. Sully. And how it worked out was my band director was a Butler grad. And so when my mom said, Jen really wants lessons, he's like, oh, well, Butler has this community arts school. Mm -hmm. And the only person who was teaching trumpet at that time was Mark B. Sully. And so we went and started taking some lessons and, um, found out that he did jazz, you know. And so I kind of started listening to some jazz players at that time. Mostly big band stuff at that time because it was so new to me. Um, But I didn't... Do you remember specific big bands? Count Basie. Mm -hmm. um, All the 30s, 40s, you know, Glenn Miller, Benny Goodman, Duke Ellington. And then from there, I got into... Miles Davis, Kind of Blue album. That's a great gateway into Miles Davis. Yeah. Well, I remember Mark gave me a CD of his big band, Happenstance. It was their mm-hmm. first, I think it was their first album. And I knew it was good, but I just really didn't get it. You know, <laughs> my ears weren't ready for it. Mm-hmm. And so I started listening to some Miles Davis stuff. And then I got into Lee Morgan. I heard him on John Coltrane's album, Blue Train. Mm-hmm. And transcribed his solo. The first solo I transcribed was his solo on I'm Old Fashioned. Which and, is, and how old are you at this point? I was probably like 15 by then, something okay. like that. Um, so, yeah, I started listening to more. And um, I told Mark I wanted to play jazz so bad. And he's like, you got to play the trumpet first. I was like, I can play the trumpet, you know, <laughs> you're in high school. And he said, okay, play your C major scale. And I said, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, yeah, we got to we gotta take care of some things. So mm-hmm. he actually didn't teach me anything about jazz until after, after high school. Was that a wise move? I wish that he would have taught me some more stuff then. But I do think, I mean, yeah, it's true. You have to be able to play the horn, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I, I do wish that I could have gotten into it more. I could have taken more initiative myself, too, mm-hmm. to do it. Um, but I have students who, if they express an interest in jazz, I try to incorporate it into all everything that we do. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you can play jazz, but you have, we're working on all our fundamentals and all the aspects of the horn, not just that, too. If I'm not mistaken, I think um, all musicians, all trumpet players, kind of use the same fundamental approach, right? Yeah, we yeah. blow through the little end. <laughs> yeah, you have to be able to play the horn, right? And then the rest is just style. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can you can hurt yourself playing any style of music if you're doing things wrong. If you can't get around the horn, you're going to be limited on your solos. I mean, the better the better you can play your instrument, the freer you are when you sit down to improvise, for sure. But you were struck by the jazz bug early. Yeah, I don't know what it was. I was. The improv- improvisation aspect, you know, it's so creative. It's so in the moment, and there's interaction. And 
um, it has been a really hard process for me. I'm definitely not, and this is the same for the trumpet too. Like I'm not one of those people that picked up the trumpet and had some magical ability or talent or anything like that. Like I've had to work my butt off for everything. Mm -hmm. And still (laughs) it's like, Mm -hmm. there's so much stuff I wish I could do on the horn. Um, But then when you have that solo where everything goes like you wanted it to, it's like, yes, that's why I am doing this. (laughs) And that happens probably frequently now, right? More often, more often. You started to say rarely, didn't you? Well, I mean, <laughs> it's happening more and more. Good. Not as often as I wanted to. <laughs> so um, I think surrounding yourself with great players helps that. Oh, yeah. And that's something you seem to have done with your uh, your current group. Um, talk about a little bit of uh, about what it's like playing with them. Okay, sure. Well, I haven't always been that way. I used to be more nervous playing with better players and you know again going back to the self-doubt and everything and um but then at i think it was probably around the time that i did my recorded my first album um somebody recommended just get the best players you can on this you want this to be a good product why not get the best players mm-hmm. so i did and during the first day of recording when i heard them playing the music i just thought this is what i want to do Hearing them play my music was so amazing. And um, even though when I went back and I listened to it, I, you know, obviously was not on the same level as them, their, like, their ability pushed me to get better. And the whole process of doing that first album, like, I feel like I got so much better so fast just because I was trying to hang on for dear life. (laughs) (laughs) And so now I've kind of been trying to play with the best musicians I possibly can at all times, just to put yourself in that situation where you have to raise the bar and try to hang on. Have you done another recording project since? Um, not uh, not for myself yet, but I have been writing and working on some new mm-hmm. stuff that hopefully next year I can do. Good. If I get all of my tunes done. And will you uh, gather the same group? I think uh, a lot of them will be the same. Um, I may add some new people to it. If I'm available, I'm happy to be there. Yeah? What are you going to play? Uh, no, I'll sit in the booth and play. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. I'll be your cheerleader. How about that? I need that. <laughs> I let Mark B. Sully sit in the booth during the recording, and I could tell if my solo was okay or not. At one point, I took a solo, and I thought, that probably I don't think that sounded good. And I looked, and he had his head in his hands, shaking his head no. <laughs> I thought, well, it's good to have someone honest in the booth, though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, who was it, Miles? Uh, I'm going to edit this out, because I'm, I'm guessing now. It was like you're always a half note or half step away from... Oh, right something, like, something like that. I don't that. know who said that, but yeah, yeah, I've heard that before. Or every wrong note is just... It's an approach tone. The right note in the wrong place or, <laughs> or something. Yeah, you can edit all that yeah. stuff up, Mark. It was all BS. <laughs> um, okay, so I want to talk a little bit more specifically regarding methods. You talked about what you studied, um, but or not necessarily methods, but your learning style. Uh, some people are play it for me, and I can play it back. Mm -hmm. Some people are show me, and then I can do it. Some people are write it down, and I can do it. What kind of a learner are you? Are you you the the aural, the visual, the tactile? 
Um, I think I'm probably mostly visual, but I like to have time by myself to let things sink in and think about it really hard. Um, I wish I was more of an aural learner as a jazz player, but I think that we all have, you know, I think people probably have a little bit of both in them. And like for me, I am definitely, when it comes to improv, I'm more on the theory side of things as opposed to the ear side of things. And so what I've been working on is really trying to build my ear more. And so it's like getting them even and then now Mm -hmm. trying to build them up, up, up. Because I think if you're too heavy on the ear side, you're not going to have your full potential if you don't understand all the theory and all the, you know, brain stuff. Mm -hmm. Same if you're really good with theory and understanding the concepts, but you can't hear it, you know, you're not going to have your full potential either. So even though I think I'm more of the like concept kind of person, trying to get both sides Mm -hmm. to even out. I can see how that relates to jazz, but, you know, think back to um, studying with Paul Everett Mm -hmm. and going through orchestral rep. Yeah. How did that apply then? You know, I don't think I knew how to do it then. Um, It's been something I've kind of figured out more, actually really pretty recently, I used to be the kind of person that, you know, that your teacher says, okay, well, what do you want to work on? Oh, I need to work on range because that's what everyone says they need to work on. <laughs> and it's like, what do you do for range? And it's like, do such and such exercise. And then you go practice that for like eight hours every day and your range doesn't get any better. And it's like, I don't understand why this didn't help. And then um, I took a lesson with Scott Belk, who has been probably, after Mark Buscelli, has probably been the most influential person I've ever studied with. I haven't studied with him like consistently, but I would say once or twice a year I grab a lesson with, from mm-hmm. him. And um, he really got me into being much more analytical about what is going on when you're playing the trumpet. And when you're doing... Physically or musically? Physically. So, you know, if you're working, if you're trying to do this exercise to increase your range, why is that exercise supposed to help your range? Mm. You know, what about it is supposed to help your range? And when you really start to think about that, then whatever you're doing, the benefits start to show up, you know, or I'm having trouble with this passage here. Why is it not working? You know, instead of just sitting and playing it over and over and over and over and over again, which, I mean, that has its benefits too, but if you don't understand why it's not working, (laughs) playing it over and over again isn't going to help. You're just going to keep doing the same thing. Right. And so he really made me start to analyze, you know, why, why you're practicing what you're practicing, what is going on physically, um, that it makes it work or not work. And so... I think that has been really helpful in teaching also Mm -hmm. because a lot of times we have to diagnose our students' issues. And for me, I don't want to be the kind of teacher that says practice this exercise because I said so. I want them to understand why they're practicing this Mm -hmm. exercise and what about it is actually going to help achieve their goal. Not just taking them through the paces just for the heck of it. Yeah, like, okay, when you're a freshman, you play this and this and this. And when you're a sophomore, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. let's really. And also, I I try to tell them that, 
you know, unfortunately, I will not always be there or some trumpet teacher will not always be there telling them why they can't play something. So if they understand how the trumpet works and how things physically work with their face, um, then they can diagnose themselves and say, oh, well, the note's not speaking. Why would a note not speak? Well, then, because probably because the buzz isn't happening. Well, why would a buzz not happen? Well, either the air isn't making the buzz or maybe I'm pushing too much so I'm blocking the buzz, you know, and they can kind of diagnose and fix it themselves. Deconstructing things Mm -hmm. to be able to put it back together the right way. Yeah, because I had to do that when I Mm -hmm. relearned how to play with the new embouchure and on the hurt embouchure. So you actually answered a question I was going to follow up with is, you know, how has that affected your teaching style? And you just demonstrated that is... (laughs) Because it sounds like you're teaching to the student specifically, not just a group of students. You're you're listening to and analyzing what they're doing and then giving them specific things mm-hmm. for their playing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely you have to teach to the student because everybody's going to be different. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I've had students who actually were too analytical and so if <laughs> if I was talking about... I have one of those right now. I won't mention David Wolf's name. But, <laughs> oh, I know. Yes. Um, but, you know, if, if you talk too much about all the little things that are happening, they're going to analyze all of that, and it's going to get in their head, and it's going to mess them up. You know? Which gets us to the phrase of analysis, or no, uh, paralysis, analysis. analysis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and I've seen it happen. But then I have other students who, you know, you can be more specific about what happened, what is going on. So you just kind of like gauge if that student can handle, or you can even come up with tricks, you know, like um, instead of talking about exactly what your tongue is doing, you know, like say all oh, when you slur down and then, or think all oh, when you slur down. And then that kind of gets them to do it. And then when they feel it, then you can say, you can point out what is your tongue doing, you know. Oh, okay, that makes sense. But once they, sometimes they have to feel it first before mm-hmm. you actually say what's what's going on. Uh, switch gears a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about uh, daily routine. And it doesn't, you know, when I say routine, it probably yeah makes you <laughs> do that, just that, you know, shake a little bit. Um, well, tell me, daily um, approach. Let's put it that way. Your daily approach to the trumpet. Okay. Well, I used to do a routine. It was like the exact same. Okay. So they can't see you do air quotes around routine. Oh, routine. Okay. <laughs> daily quote unquote routine um, where I would do the exact same thing every single day. Um, and I'm sure everyone has gotten to the point where you're bored with it, you know, and it's like, I don't even want to practice because I have to go through all this that I've done millions of times and it's boring. Um, And then I don't even know, this this has happened fairly recently too. I've been thinking about warm up and routine and how is that. Um, I, I guess this probably came along when I was in my doctorate and I was really strapped for time. You know, and being a grad assistant, you have all those duties, and then you have to study, and, like, good luck finding time to actually practice. 
which even though it's your major, you know what that's like. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so sometimes it's like I would warm up, and that's the only, besides rehearsals, that's like the only time I would get alone on my horn. And I'm like, I, I can't do this. I have to actually get better. <laughs> and so then I was like, well, let's make a warm-up routine that actually makes me better. And so I thought about, you know, what are the aspects of the horn that I want to improve upon? Um, I think about, you know, my embouchure, my air, my fingers, my tongue. I think about my ears and my time. I think that's all the ones. Yeah. Um, so those are like the main things. And my, okay, so my goal is to hit the, something to do with one of those categories every single day. Mm-hmm. And so the way that I do that is I've got my big stack of method books or my certain exercises that I like. I'm a, I love method books. I used to not, but I think it's because I just didn't know how to use them. Maybe we should form a 12 half step group. <laughs> What would we do? Just play everything in every key? No, we would admit that we have an addiction for oh. method books. <laughs> yes. You know, hi, my name's Larry. <laughs> I do like them. But I think the reason I used to not like them is because I didn't know how to do them. And then I was like, oh, it's a method book. You have to approach it in a methodical way. And so I now what I do is it's like, okay, I want to work on my fingers. So let's get out these good Clark studies or whatever. And so today's date, what is today? August 17th, 2018. I'm starting Clark study, da da da, at 60 beats a minute. I always, for some reason, 60 is like my beginner. I want to start slower than necessary because I want to be accurate about it. And um, show off. <laughs> showing off at 60 beats a minute. <laughs> Yeah, but you know what? A lot of people can't play it slow, can they? That's, I guess, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do that. You do it tongued with a metronome. Boom, you've worked on time, tongue, and fingers all in one session. Mm-hmm. You're like halfway through. Um, you do some flow studies or some nice, easy flexibilities. You've worked, made sure your air is moving really well. You know, your embouchure is feeling, uh, being efficient and da, da, da. Um, and so I keep track of all the dates and all the tempos and all my books for all the exercises. Um, so I can look back and I can say, oh, look, I've actually gotten better at these. Because sometimes it's hard to tell if we've gotten mm-hmm. better. And then... Um, with the method books also, I'm in no hurry to get those up to a certain speed because I'm not going to be performing from my Schlossberg anytime soon. <laughs> so if I if it's like two years later and I'm only at, you know, 80 beats a minute or 70 beats a minute, that's fine, you know, because the whole goal for me is I'm trying to get better and I'm trying to make, thing, make sure I'm doing things right. Um, so, yeah, I guess... That's how I view my routine is I am just systematically trying to go through and hit all these aspects. Mm-hmm. And, ev- and so, like, maybe one day I'll play uh, or one week I'll play an exercise, depending on what it is. Like, okay, all week I'm going to do number one from this book at 60 beats. And then the next week I go on to the next exercise, even if I haven't mastered the first one. Then you do the whole book at 60. When you come back to the beginning of it and bump it up to 65, you're already better (laughs) at it. And you're not bored at seeing it again because you just read through that whole book. 
and you go back and do it at 65. And then you go back, and I write it down to my thing. I did it at 65, and I go back in 70, you know? And then you hit the point when you maybe you get to, like, 110, and it's like, I can't go in fives now. We're going to go by one. <laughs> you so know? you mentioned Clark and Schlossberg. What other, give me some examples of other method books you've used. Um, actually, I think we talked about this recently. You recommended the Irons book to me. Mm-hmm. That was like 10 years ago, and that book was eye-opening. It'll kick me. your butt, won't it? Yeah. Well, that book, no one ever told me about tongue placement, and so I was trying to do everything with my lips, you know, which you can't. That's why you hurt yourself, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's much easier to do the tongue placement thing than try to control your lips like that. And so that book has been awesome for me. And it, it really helped me uh, not rely so much on my face. And what else do I use? Oh, I love the Advanced Lip Flexibility book, Colin book. Mm-hmm. Love that book. Um, I feel like... Playing out of that a lot, a lot has helped my range. Flexus, have you heard of that book? I have. It's like the best name for a method book ever. It's Flexus Modern Calisthenics, no Trumpet Calisthenics for the Modern Improviser. Mm-hmm. And I like that book because you know there's flexibility, there's tonguing, there's wide intervals, there's all kinds of stuff in there. There's pedal tones and pitch bending, but it's like kind of a unique take on all of them and it gives you some different ideas of how to practice stuff to keep you interested in the interview i did with uh, conrad jones principal trumpet of the indianapolis symphony he also uses flexus oh yeah you don't have to be an improviser just to play it it's got great stuff in it but he does have jazz chops oh nice yeah so, yeah if you didn't know that uh, you should check check it out at some time cool yeah i will um, what about etude books? I mean, uh, we've talked about method books, but what about uh, either jazz etude books or uh, lyrical etude books, anything along that line? Mm-hmm. Um, the Conconi mm-hmm. book, um, I like that a lot, especially if I just want to play, when I just feel like good free-flowing air. And um, Then what, this first book of practical studies. <laughs> <laughs> This is this is like the magic book. If my face feels really horrible, I'll just play some of these easily. They're not hard, yep. you know, and maybe just slur them or do some different articulations, and then my face feels better. Um, of course, all the herring books I like. The Brant book. And that's a red herring. Yes, it is a red herring. That's a really bad joke right there. So yeah, that is pretty 40 progressive etudes. My one specific. I edit that one. Uh, <laughs> no, that's staying in for sure. Um, and then the, the Brant book. Um, Orchestral Studies. Which one was that? Yeah, Orchestral Etudes. Yeah, this Brant Etudes for Trumpet, Orchestral Etudes, and Last Etudes. So this one actually... Once my embouchure started feeling a lot better, Dr. Hendricks had me play some of these ones that were very noty in them, and I did them all flutter-tongued. And so what that did was made me realize how much air I should actually be using to play the trumpet. And so I would flutter-tongue them, and then I'd go back, and then I'd play them slurred with that same amount of air, and then I would try to tongue them with that same amount of air. So that was a really helpful book during that time. You know, I the flutter tongue uh, aspect was only introduced to me maybe five or six years ago. Mm-hmm. And oh my gosh, I wish I had known about it way, way before that. 
it's a it's a good not just indication. For myself, but yeah, to be able to use for students mm-hmm. because in order to flutter, you have to have your air moving. It doesn't happen otherwise, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, so she had me do a lot of flutter tonguing at that moment and then just try to go back and forth between that and slurring regularly and mm-hmm. using the same amount of air. Here's a fun little side note about the Brandt. Uh, my first trumpet teacher was Vince DiMartino. And my very first lesson with him, I remember he was at the University of Kentucky at the time, and I walked up the stairs to his studio and I heard him working. I didn't know it was number six at the time, but it was Brandt number six. And it was the most ridiculous. It sounded like Vizzuti's Cascades. <laughs> it was all over the place. And uh, I walked in, and I remember seeing it sitting on the stand, and I thought, I'll never be able, to be able to play anything like that. And so my first assignment ended up being uh, Arvin, Characteristic Study Number 1. Mm, that's a good one. And Brant number six. Oh, no. <laughs> and I thought, there's no way on earth I'm going to get this together. And here we are, you know, 30-some years later, and it's still kicking my butt. <laughs> yeah, I hear yeah, that. Great book. Great book. So um, I'm just curious. Have you ever tried swinging any of these things in there? No, I haven't. No, that's an interesting idea. Yeah, why not? I did do um, the Vizzuti books. Mm-hmm. Um, there's... Is it book number one that has all the scale things in it? Or is that number two? I don't remember. The the three there are three that blend together and then he's got the progressive yeah. etude book. It's not the etude book. Oh yeah, these. So the Vizuti method book one, the technical studies. You can see how I oh, wrote yeah. I wrote down the dates and the tempos and stuff. And I I always try to memorize everything because I just think that makes it better. Mm-hmm. You just kind of internalize it. But I did I did do these uh, straight in swung. Mm-hmm. So. Cool. Now I want to practice. <laughs> <laughs> so wh- who inspires you to practice these days? Well, when you're out of school, I have to inspire myself to practice a lot. But are, are there players that you listen to? Oh, like, yeah. Yeah. Um, Probably right now, I feel like I've been saying this a lot lately, but um, Tom Harrell is my favorite trumpet player right now. Um, So I listen to him a lot. I love his tone. That's the first thing that attracts me to a trumpet player. They have a good sound. Um, His harmonic sense, his melodic sense. I mean, he... He can play anything on the trumpet, but he's still very lyrical mm-hmm. about it. So I love him. Listen to him a lot. I still like Lee Morgan. First person, well, you know, first person I ever transcribe. Still mm-hmm. love Lee Morgan. Still love Miles Davis and Chet Baker. Um, but then, like, even just looking at, you know, my the people I've studied with, like Alan and Mark, they're always still getting better. You know, every time I hear them, they sound better. Mm-hmm. And it's really inspiring because they don't, you know, I've always thought they sounded amazing. But it's like, like they get to a point and, well, that's good enough. And they just play like that. They're always striving and mm-hmm. practicing. And mm-hmm. it's like, well, cool. If they can do that, then I can do, I can keep getting better too. Anything that you'd like to share, maybe that we haven't talked about today? Words of wisdom. Words of wisdom. Don't play trumpet. <laughs> Should have played the saxophone. No. Run. <laughs> I guess, um, I mean, probably you'll have a lot of educators and a lot, maybe some students listening to this podcast, right? 
I would hope so. You think more... In the millions, probably. You think, like, more students or more teachers would be listening? I have no idea. You don't know? No idea. It's going to be family at first. (laughs) Paid family will be listening at first. (laughs) I guess if I had any advice for teachers, it would be to um, make sure that you understand what you're doing when you play the trumpet and when you're practicing so that you can, you know, explain it to your students and you're not just giving out random things for them to work on. Um, Because if they really understand it, I think they'll progress more even when they don't have you around. Um, So my advice for teachers is to really make sure that you understand what you do when you play the trumpet so that You know, you can tell your students why they're practicing what they're practicing and not just, you know, assigning them seemingly random things um, because it will actually help them progress um, when they don't have you around if they understand what they're doing or why they're doing what they're doing. Um, Also, just be very patient with the student um, because everybody's going to learn differently. Everybody you know, has different physical makeup. Um, that's like one thing when I hear trumpet players, like some of my students think they need to play on the biggest mouthpiece they can possibly get because someone told them that better trumpet players play on bigger mouthpieces. It's like, do you have the same teeth and lips and jaw as the person sitting next to you? You know, so don't be, try not to get too many ideas, generalized ideas of what a student should be doing. Um, make sure that they're playing efficiently and by that I mean that they're not working harder than they need to to play the horn if you see any kind of like extra movement or weird things that they're doing try to address it immediately because I mean someone who has you know been injured and wondered if I would ever play again it's not fun (laughs) (laughs) and it does hurt it physically hurts and it mentally hurts Um, So if you can stop a student early, especially I'm talking students that are like middle school, high school, if you can stop that, then you'll be potentially be saving your student a lot. Um, And but also remember that, you know, efficient playing isn't something that's going to happen in a week or two. Um, I don't even feel like I play as efficiently as I could potentially. I think it's a lifelong thing and you're going to fall back into bad habits, but you should always be checking in and seeing um yeah no that's great (laughs) uh you know i think even students could listen to that you you were speaking to the teachers but yeah students could listen to that and and understand Mm -hmm. um, that they could be on the lookout for that those things as well well and students you know if your teacher assigns you something there's nothing wrong with saying how does this Mm -hmm. help me get better at such and such because if you're just blowing through the horn hoping that that's magically going to fix your problems probably won't. <laughs> so, well, I want to say thanks for your time this afternoon. Uh, again, I admire your perseverance through uh, your journey through uh, repairing your embouchure and all of that. And uh, I admire what you've accomplished already, and I'm looking forward to working with you more and more at uh, UND. And I think we're going to have a great time, um, you know, destroying a lot. I mean, building up a lot of trumpet <laughs> players uh, who come through there. So, 
Uh, I wish you the best with everything you're doing, your next recording project and, and all of that. And uh, thanks again for your time. Thanks, Larry. Well, that wraps up today's interview. Thanks for being here. I know your time is valuable, as is mine, and I'm grateful that you spent some of that listening to this podcast. Please visit Apple Podcast and leave a rating and a review. And if you'd like to support the show financially and receive some cool benefits, you can find out how at patreon.com slash studio HFL. Thanks again to my show sponsors, Messina Covers, Hammond Design, Pickett Blackburn, Eastman Winds, S.E. Shires, Austin Custom Brass, and Chop Saber. I'm Larry Powell, your host. Thanks again for being here. See you next time. This has been a production of Powell Music, LLC. Thank you.